Tiguit, Agus Falchigashra, Pod Crayler, Fela Stara Fingal, Garvelis Fiha. Hello, and welcome to the Fingal Festival of History podcast series 2020, brought to you by Fingal Libraries. This marks the fourth annual such festival, and due to COVID 19, all talks were recorded in the chapel at Swords Castle and made available online through Fingal Libraries media platforms as well as our YouTube channel. The centenary of the Sack of Balbriggan takes place this year and provides the main theme for our festival. Guest speakers also discuss the War of Independence and other political conditions relevant during this turbulent period of Ireland's history. This episode's talk was given by Jim Walsh, who is a retired librarian and founding member of the Balbriggan and District Historical Society. The talk is on the Sack of Balbriggan, a retrospective view and it will give the local and historical context, and with the aid of images, give a comprehensive account of the sack of Balbriggan based on contemporary accounts, military and RIC archives, newspaper coverage, and other publications and interviews. Hello folks, my name is Jim Walsh. I'm a resident of Balbriggan. But I'm delighted here to be in Swords this morning at the invitation of Marguerite Drake and the Public Libraries Department of Fingal County Council. I actually had the honour of serving as a librarian for 40 years from October 66, 2016 for three local authorities, but I spent the last 24 of those with Fingal Libraries, 10 in Malahide, and the last 15 in my beloved Carnegie Free Library in Balbriggan. I'm a founder member of Balbriggan Historical Society since 1981, still a serving committee member. And I suppose I've devoted the last two years to researching a tragic event which was, became worldwide news called the Sack of Balbriggan. Now, I couldn't have done this without the support of the Committee of Our Society, and in particular our current secretary, who was here with us, Killian Harford. I relied on his technical prowess for this presentation and his skills as a photographer as well. I would like just to deliver a brief introduction first before turning to our slideshow as such. And first of all, I'd just like to paint a small picture of the town of Barbrigan itself. Look at it. What was it like from January the 1st, 1920, prior to the tragic events of the sack of Barbrigan? Quick look at it from an economic and a social point of view and also a political point of view. I often thought that Barbrigan could best be described as a thriving industrial seaside resort. The census of 1911 revealed that a population of 2,273 resided in 507 houses. In essence, the town boundary extended from the Tambo houses at the northern end of the town to the confluence of Skerry Street and Market Green. As a coastal location, it boasted of a working harbour completed in the 1760s, a salt works established by Samuel Payne and in the 1900s was actually run by McDonald's and Sons, a Coast Guard station erected in 1864, a sea bath house based in the former RNLI boathouse, which opened in December 1875 uh, to house the very first lifeboat, the Maid of Annan, and that was following two tragic shipwrecks in 1873 and 1875. The town was separated from the sea by a very impressive railway viaduct, completed by 1844. It's comprised of 11 arches. It was actually designed by John McNeil, who was in charge of the entire project of building the Dublin Drahada Railway. Now, also, Barbriggan at this stage had three very successful factories. Uh, 
A linen mill run by the Gallon family in the aptly named Mill Street since the 1870s, and two very large hosiery concerns, namely Smith & Company and Balbrick & Siemens Limited. The former, who traced their origins to 1780, were world famous for the quality of their hosiery products, and they had moved to a new premises close to railway station in 1867, but unfortunately had to rebuild and extend their premises following a fire in 1882. And during this period, a British firm, namely Deeds Temper and Son, established a factory on the Seabanks in 1884, which they called Barbrigan Sea Mills Limited. The town could also boast of a market house, built in 1811, the scene of annual markets and monthly fairs, courthouse in George's Square, built in 1849, a new town hall opened in May of 1900, and a very architecturally distinctive Carnegie Free Library, built by local contractor Michael Heaney in 1905 and officially opened November 1906. Now, in January 1920, Smith & Company decided to build a new loom house attached to the factory. Accordingly, Thomas Cashel, a senior employee, wrote to the Bulawayo Rural District Council, urging them to build new houses in Barbrigan, stating that he felt confident that these new employees could afford to pay a rent of 10 shillings. Now, let's look at the political scene in 1920 in Barbrigan. January 1920 saw the very first local elections in Ireland since 1914. The ensuing results of the Town Commission's election reflected, I think, a virtual sea change in the political sensitivities of the people of the area. Contrary to received opinion, Balbriggan was not a hotbed of republicanism. Indeed, local historians Barbara Curtis and Frank Querity, who have published learned articles on the subject, have revealed that no one was, in inverted commas, out in 1916. Local historian Bernard Howard contributed an article to Fingal Studies Journal in 2010, in which he revealed that no less a number than 292 men from Babrigan and surrounds enlisted the British Army during World War I, and that 41 of these people perished. Indeed, a local company of volunteers was not formed in Babrigan until early 1917, and this contrasts with the neighbouring towns of Rush, Lusk and Swords. Now, while their membership temporarily increased in 1918, owing to the threat of conscription in Ireland, obviously it abated then when the threat abated itself. Now, however, the local elections held in January 1920 showed a real change in the political leanings of the local population, as witnessed by the following results of the elections for town commissioners on the 15th of January 1920, and I'm indebted to current uh, committee member Brian Kavanagh, who is an employee of Fingal Libraries and is now based in the archives of North Street Swords. And these are the following results in alphabetical order by surname Michael Brady Labour, Thomas Cashel, we've heard of him already, Unionist, Stephen Corey, Independent, Phil Curran, Labour, John Derham, Sinn Fein, Michael James Derham, Sinn Fein, Richard Gorman, Unionist. Archdale Graham, Nationalist, and James McLeod, Sinn Féin. So three of these new members were absolutely re representing Sinn Féin. And in fact, Michael James Derham, or as he was known to his contemporaries, Jimmy Derham, the son of John Derham, at the tender age of 23, was elected chairman of the Town Commissioners. And not only that, he and Michael Brady, in June of the same year, were also elected to the board of the Rural, Rural District Council. And now, before we begin our slideshow, I'd just like to mention 
or referred to an incident that occurred in Lurbriggan some months previously in Clannard Street, which also resulted in the death of an RDC officer, but had not got the same dreadful consequences as pertained to the events of September. I refer to the death of Sergeant Patrick Finnerty. In April 1920, Patrick Clancy led a hunger strike in Mountjoy Prison involving over 100 Republican prisoners who were incarcerated without trial. Shops and businesses throughout Ireland and Balbriggan closed down on the 12th and 13th of that month. Somewhat surprisingly, the British government acceded to the prisoners' demand and all were released on the evening or the afternoon of the 13th in Balbriggan. An impromptu parade was organised that very evening when local union, labour and Sinn Féin supporters marched to Clannard Hill, lit a bonfire, recited prayers and sang celebratory songs. They were followed at a distance by four members of the local RIC contingent who were based in Bridge Street. Namely, Inspector Hunter, Sergeant Finnerty and Constables McGill and Shannon. Now, one newspaper account states that Sergeant Finnerty approached a man called Lawless and inquired whether his songs were Sinn Féin's or Labour's, to which the reply allegedly was, and I quote, both. We're not quite sure, was a Thomas Lawless, aged 69, living in Mabrigan at the time as a fisherman? And the only other Mr. Lawless we're aware of was Mr. James Lawless, then aged 41, a barber. After the parade, as the crowds dispersed down to Nard Hill in teeming rain and in darkness, shots rang out and Sergeant Finnerty was carried to the house of John Costello. Local curate William Murphy was called to the scene, Father William Murphy, to administer last rites. Dr. William Fulham, the local resident MD, was called. He removed a bullet from the abdomen of the stricken officer and summoned a motor lorry from Gormanstown to bring him to the Matter Hospital, where Sergeant Finnerty was pronounced dead at 8.30 on the following Friday, 15th of April. Now, it is said that Canon Eugene D. Bourne Parish priest of Albriggan, in his homily from the pulpit of St. Peter and Paul's Church on the following Sunday morning, lamented the fact that this was the first murder in Balbriggan for many years, and that he hoped that the scourge of God would not be visited on his flock, shall we say. Somewhat prophetic words. And now we begin our slide presentation relating to the sack of Balbriggan. We're starting with two, actually, books here that I found very relevant when researching the subject. And they're also in the public domain, and if not, you probably can find them in your local library. Now, the item on the left is quite extraordinary. I was only recently reading the review by Michael Foley that appeared in the Sunday Times on the 17th of December 2017, the year of its publication. The title is called The Atlas of the Irish Revolution. He actually called it a monumental or a gigantic tome. And in fact, when referring to its weight, he said it was the architectural equivalent of a breeze block. In fact, there are 103 contributors who have written 158 articles. There's over 900 pages of text. And in the index, I found eight specific references to the sack of Barbrigan. And Killian and I have actually used one or two diagrams and photographs from this for our presentation. The item on the right is the third of trilogy of books written by Michael B. Barry, The Fight for Irish Freedom, an illustrated history of the War of Independence, and again, we have found it particularly useful for this presentation. Now we're looking at three books, all that are particularly useful. The book on the left was first published in 1959. It was out of print for many years, and it was republished by Barnes & Noble, of all people, in New York in 1995. 
It's called The Black and Tans by an English writer, Richard Bennett. And in rereading it, I found it particularly useful and far more comprehensive than I had thought. It only devotes about a page and a half on one photograph to the sack of a brigand per se. The second uh, cover, or book cover, is of a book that was published by a native of, of Stamullen and a local historian of some note in the area called Brendan Matthews. And the item on the front cover uh, depicts, I suppose, what would you call it, an invoice. He came into possession of a collection of invoices for 1920 in the possession of a family called Mitchell and Stamullen. And he features a lot of these invoices as illustrations in his book. But the overall illustration or the photograph in the background is of Clonard Hill overlooking Balbriggan. Uh, it's a booklet. Um, it's not comprehensive. He wouldn't be the first. To, uh, he'd be the first to admit it. But because for many years he was involved in an indexing project in Millmount's Tower in Drada, where he indexed the Drada and the pennant by subject, person, and place, his introductory chapters on the social life in Balbriggan is particularly useful. And the third book I happened to read in the last year or two, I think it may have been launched in 2017 in Balbriggan Library. I certainly know that this copy was presented to me, signed copy by the author Brian Gallagher, by the then branch librarian Patricia Ryan. And it's set in Barbriggan in 1920. It's ostensibly intended for young adults or teenagers. I would recommend it to adults of all age groups. I thought it was a wonderful book in terms of setting and characterization. And for the record, the story concerns a young ex-orphan called Johnny Dunn, who gets a job as a boot boy in the Mill Hotel, which I take to be loosely based on the original Hamilton Arms Hotel in Barbriggan, on the site of which now stands the Breckencourt Hotel. And through his membership of local bands and chess club, he befriends two girls, local girls, Alice Goodwin, the daughter of the widowed owner of the hotel, and a girl called Stella Radcliffe, who is the daughter of the OC in charge of the Gormanstown Aerodrome, three miles north of Balbriggan. But young Johnny becomes sort of um, under the influence of a somewhat mysterious visiting whiskey salesman called O'Shea, who inveigles him into eavesdropping on conversations of officers from Gormanstown in the hope of finding out what the government's intentions were for the aerodrome. The item on the left is the front cover of a cassette or a film, and there's a story behind that in itself. In the early 90s, a committee member called Tommy Coughlin, originally from Finglas, as a member of Alsa Social Club, wanted to enter a video competition for 15 minutes. And he was stuck for a subject, and I happened to suggest in passing, what about the sack of a brigand? He'd never heard of it. So I just, at his request, I just found a few newspaper items of the time, particularly the Irish Times, uh, and I read them over a period of time into a tape recorder. He listened to that, edited it, and asked me to re-record the edited version. And with that as a voiceover, he took moving contemporary film footage of Bob Brigham, but he also then sourced newspaper photographs and also used special effects, etc. He won a prize. When I saw the final result, I thought it was too good to be true. So we sourced three senior citizens of Barbrigan then who were alive during the sack of Barbrigan and prepared to invite us into their houses and talk to us on camera. And the three interviewees were Michael Hammond, who was born in Wareton, Clannard Street, was age seven then. Mrs. McGillivray, then resident in Drogheda Street. She was living in Dublin Street at the time, was the daughter of John Keegan. And I chose myself to visit Mrs. Bridget Daly in Flemington Lane, because I was told on, on several occasions, particularly senior citizens' outings, she had a wonderful singing voice, and that she sang the song, the ballad of Balbriggan, 
but I wasn't sure which air she used. So in each case, Tommy I and his daughter Elaine interviewed each person for an hour. Now we had a prop, and the prop I placed on the knees of each interviewee was an album of photographs we had on loan from Jim Glennon from Scaries. The album belonged to his, who was his mother, who was a daughter of Joseph McGowan, the owner of the Gladstone Inn, which was actually one of the licensed premises that was destroyed. Tommy then edited each interview into 15 minutes, and so now we had a film, a video, lasting an hour. So while we were making the film, Maxie McAvoy, originally a member of The Strangers in Barbrick and then living in Swords, rang me and asked me to send some material to him. He wrote a lovely ballad and he recorded it. And as the credits roll on this, Maxie McAvoy's ballad can be heard very clearly. Over the years, now eventually we decided, a committee member then, Jerry MacDonald, had the sound enhanced. Tommy devised the cover. And we decided to sell them at 10 pounds at a time. Ultimately, eventually, about 300 copies sold, but gradually the sound effects sort of deteriorated. So we decided to leave it at that. And over the years, every September as part of our autumn programme, in the Milestone Inn, etc., we would show this on a big old television. And in the year the Bracken Court Hotel opened, we decided to use the new facilities in the new function room with a pull-down screen. We got a very large crowd, including members of the Daly family particularly. And I remember introducing it and going across the road to the central pub. It was very warm. Had a pint of water, watched the soccer match, came back, and in the hallway watched the last part of the cassette. And Mrs. Daly was singing, a beautiful, wonderful singing voice. The ballad of Sackable Brigham, ironically, to the tune of Kevin Barry, because coincidentally, Kevin Barry, an 18-year-old medical student, was arrested at 11 o'clock on the same day, September the 20th, 1920. He was part of a party of volunteers who ambushed a group of soldiers collecting a bread ration from a bakery. He was arrested, and as we know, he was hanged, and etc. But um, if nothing else, the video is a tribute uh, uh, to the three interviewees who have all passed away since. The next image is the title page of a thesis compiled by local lady Mary Fogarty. While I was in Rubrick and Library in the 90s, I was in a position to help her with some primary sources. She completed this thesis in 2010 for Dublin City University. And she um, gave a personal copy to me. So while it's not in the public, uh, public domain per se, it certainly is available through the archives of Brigham and District Historical Society. Uh, she was probably one of the first students, I think, to avail of the recently released uh, contents of the Military History Bureau of Ireland. Between 47 and 59, Groups of officers, men, went around the country interviewing people who were involved in the War of Independence. And altogether, something like 1,800 people were interviewed. And two of those statements, now these were under lock and key for 50 years, or only released in hard copy in March 2003. But for the benefit of the Sackville Brigade and the research, two of these statements were particularly worthwhile and essential. One was recorded by a local man, Jack Gaynor, in 1955. And he was the first uh, captain of the Wabrigan Company of Volunteers. And while he was not directly involved in the sack of Wabrigan, he was very involved in the uh, event that I mentioned leading to the death of Sergeant Finnerty. Because in his statement in 1955, he admitted that he was the man who shot Sergeant Finnerty on the night in question. The second statement was by Michael Rock, and he was one of the two protagonists involved 
actually in the Sackville Brigham, and more of Michael Rock anon. Now, these are recent slides Killian and I have added to our presentation. The book on my left is out of print, was loaned to me by my neighbour, Jerry MacDonald. It was published in 1989 by uh, Scarry's man, well-known, ex-teacher, gifted artist and writer. This is one of three books he wrote on, this, on the subject uh, of the Irish War of Independence. This is called Reprisal. The last two chapters in particular uh, deal with the events at the Sack of Brigham. And uh, fictionally, they are very, provide very gruesome accounts of the end that Mr. Lawless and Master Gibbons met. That would be a black and tan or auxiliary, we're not quite sure which, in the forefront. We take that to be the ruined uh, exterior of Landy's Thatch premises on Drawdy Street. Now, we know that a family called Seaver living next door lost her house, a Mr. Seaver in the 1911 census as a fisherman. It's possible, but we can't say for definite, that that may have been the Seaver family about to ta take away their belongings on horse and cart. Now, Killian and I have taken this diagram from the uh, Atlas of the Irish Revolution. It's, it's from an article uh, contributed by Marie Coleman, a historian attached to Queen's University, Belfast. And it's an ideal for a presentation like this. So we're going to start at the very bottom of the uh, diagram or map of a brigand with Dublin Street. And then the first diagram I can see, it says Smith's Public House, Bourke Brothers, both RAC, killed by Michael Rock. Now that error, unfortunately, is still being used in many published accounts. And I was surprised to see it was also used by, Mike, uh, by Bernie Coleman in the 2017 publication, because as we know now, of course, Peter Bourke did die, but his brother, William Patrick, survived. Now, we're going to start with the, with the, with the facts we understand them from the newspaper reports for the following week from the written statements of Michael Rock recorded on the 26th of April 1956, and from a tape I had the pleasure of taping with an ex-volunteer from a brigand called Willie Corcoran in 1978, when he was almost 80 years of age, because those two men were the actual two protagonists involved in the following events. Now, if we move further down past George's Square, down past the RIC barracks to the confluence of Mill Street and Clonard Street with Bridge Street. And we see a sign that says Connolly's Public House. Now, that was a house, a shop, and a premises owned by a cavalman, Patrick Connolly. Now, as Michael Rock reveals, and as Willie Corker reveals, they were both drinking in that pub on that night, Monday the 20th September. Now, Michael Rock at that stage was a very, very senior figure in the Fingal Brigade. He was OC of the Nall Battalion, which had overall control of the companies in Skerries, Dunabate, Barbrigan, Gormanstown, Boggavering, etc. But the reason he was in, as he says himself, in Connolly's that night was that several weeks previously he'd organised what he called, and I quote, a flapper athletics meeting in a field near Gormanstown station. Now, it was ostensibly funds for the volunteers, they couldn't advertise it as such, and that Jimmy Derham, the town commissioner, acted as treasurer. But he, he, he remarked ironically that most of the contestants were actually black and tans who were then stationed from August of that year in a nearby military camp. Now, he was in Connolly's that night to pay expenses to Jimmy Derham and others. And I often wonder, had he not been a brigand that night, would the following events ever have happened? Because he was a senior figure in the volunteer movement. 
Now, Willie Corcoran says in his own speak that he was actually drinking with Michael Rock when Jack Gilday and John Thompson came in and said, and I quote his words, there's murder up in the bar. He was actually referring to sort of a ruckus or a brawl that was starting to occur in Mary Smith's pub. Because earlier that evening, a taxi alighted from Dublin with two brothers, both RAC officers, Peter Bourke, a very young head constable, promoted head constable the previous year. And most sources say that actually on the day in question, he had been promoted to district inspector. And he had set off from Dublin with his brother, a sergeant in the RAC, Sergeant William Patrick. And they were drinking and celebrating and intent on travelling to Gormanstown camp because Peter Burke had been an instructor of the Black and Tans in Phoenix Park prior to the removal to Gormanstown. Now, after that, uh, the variant accounts of what happened, um, some newspapers said that there was a row, Black and Tans were in the bar. They had a habit of alighting and bringing off a 7 and 15 train and then heading back at 10 15 to the camp. Mary Smith, when she was interviewed by the Irish Times, the owner of the pub, said no. They were just singing, they were too loud, and she refused to serve any more drink. And she sent somebody down to the RIC barracks there on the diagram, further down on Bridge Street, to sort it out. And apparently some of the RIC members came up. We're not sure whether they entered the premises, but for whatever reason, they declined to intervene. Perhaps they were intimidated by the black and tans. Michael Rock had sent Willie Corcoran up to Clannard Street. Willie had told me he had two pistols and ammunition stored in a hayrick at Clannard Street. He returned with the guns, gave one to Michael Rock. They decided then to enter the scene. They crossed Georgia Square, and as Willie Corcoran says, we walked up Heaney's Lane. And these, Heaney's were local uh, contractors, and they kind of had a store or premises there. We know it now as Vauxhall Street. So, the, I suppose I can now take up the account what immediately followed directly from Michael Rock's personal testimony. Quote, we went to the back door of the public house, that's Willie Corcoran and himself, where the tans were, and with the guns on our hands, entered and ordered them to clear out. Amongst a party of tans who were seemingly unarmed, but who we knew always carried some type of small arms, were two head constables, two brothers named Burke from Kerry. We know, of course, now, they weren't both head constables and they weren't from Kerry. The two brothers were from Denimaddy and County Galway. I continue his statement, quote, As we entered, we could see that the Tans had hold of a man named Monks and some other civilians who had been drinking in the pub. When I ordered them to clear out, instead of doing so, they made a rush at me and had no option but to fire. I shot one of the head constables dead and wounded the other, who later recovered, and then my pal and I namely Willie Corcoran, cleared out the back door and got safely away. End of quote. Now, they didn't immediately leave town, bearing in mind that some months earlier, Sergeant Finnerty had met his death at Clenard Street and there had not been a reprisal. But according to Willie Corcoran, they walked up Dublin Street, up Market Green, down Pump Lane, and if they encountered anybody who were in involvement, they, they sort of warned them. At that stage, Michael Rock says he was fearful, perhaps, of the towns coming into town. He disposed of his weapon, cycled back to his house in the Nall. Willie Corcoran actually went home to bed in Clenard Street. He was one of seven children living with their widowed mother, Annie Corcoran, who had a house and a dairy. The entire premises later torched that night. He was woken up at some stage during the night 
when, as I say, all hell had broken loose in the town and um, eventually, of course, he went into the countryside. Now, by 11 o'clock that night then, word had spread to Gormanson camp, possibly of the death of two RIC officers. And obviously some of the towns were incensed and apparently roared, as they said, into Bridge Street, three or four across the tenders parked inside the RIC barracks. One person uh, was quoted by the papers as he saw an RIC sergeant commandeering cans of petrol from Connolly's uh, then garage in Key Street and taking away him in a handcart and then going directly across the road to the confluence of Clonard Street and Drogheda Street to the house and pub of John Derham, a town commissioner for Sinn Féin. And they, of course, helped themselves to the, the liquor. They, the, the family were terrorised and obviously had to leave the house for their safety. But John Derham himself was held for several hours on the curbside and threatened with struck with rifle butts or actually being shot. We know all of this because following the sack of a brigand, a few days later, a letter came to the town commissioners from an American commission into conditions in Ireland, which was then set up in a meeting in Washington. And the invitation was to the chairman of the Brigantown commissioners to attend the meeting in Washington. And in his reply, John Derham stated that the chairperson, namely his son, was already incarcerated, but he would travel over. We now know that after getting a visa, six weeks later, he traveled to Washington in what was called a small trading vessel, gave verbatim evidence to these uh, commissioners his verbatim evidence was very quickly published in a document called Torture and Terror in Ireland. And it gives us a very, very clear and concise account of exactly what happened to his family on the night in question. Now, obviously then, they went across the road and burnt down Connolly's entire pub, house and shop as well. And damage was done to various... Then they advanced up Clenard Street. And there were two rows of cottages at the top of Clenard Street, Six of them belonged to the O'Neill brothers, Terence and James, and six belonged to the Roger Rural District Council. They're all born to the ground. Um, several other houses are born to the ground as well, slated two-storey two dwellings. Many house uh, windows were shattered, and obviously people fled for their lives, men, women and children, their night attire. Flew up to the Tenard Hill, hid in the fields and the ditches. Some people fled out outside Barbrigan to Fancourt, etc., I remember taping a man called Jerry Donnelly in Cravian Park, and he was five or six at the time living in Key Street. And he remembers his mother taking him by the hand underneath the arch of the viaduct up to the Miss Bankheads uh, on the Bower, and they were looked after. But he says to Granny Donnelly, uh, insisted that no black and tan was going to drive, drive her out of her house, and she stayed put. Now, they obviously, when they were finished their ministrations to Tonard Street, they advanced up Drogheda Street. They damaged the premises of James McLew. Across the road was another pub run by a temporary woman called Anastasia Morrissey. She was in temporary. Mary Ann Hall had a shop from Cavan. We're advancing up Drogheda Street. Railway Street is on the right. And we can now tell the story of what happened in Railway Street because they advanced down Railway Street, apparently intent on burning down Smith's factory, which employed a huge amount of people. And some people, in various accounts, attribute the credit to Dr. Fulham or to one of the local uh, constables for prevailing upon the, the towns not, not to damage this important factory. But the most significant account of all is um, an article that appeared in a footblock magazine in the summer of 1971. 
Space and Interview by Lady Col Lily Collins, who at the time of the publication had died, there was a photograph of her as an elderly lady, RIP. But her story was that as a young girl in night in question, she and her father, JJ Collins, now they lived in the red brick buildings on the left of Station Street, and they were, I suppose, lived in by senior employees of Smith's factory. Richard, Richard Gorman lived there, the Harpers lived there, these people were senior employees. They were standing in terror at four o'clock in the morning when they heard tramp of the boots of the soldiers advancing down Railway Street. But they heard Mr. Richard Gorman next door and his son walking outside and speaking to the officers and she expressed her then amazement and her father's amazement that in fact they listened to them. So they left Smith's untouched, walked down along the beach to the sea banks and ironically burned down an entire factory to the ground, which is actually English owned, that was by breaking the Seamans Limited. It was said that 120 men were employed in the factory and up to 300, mostly mothers and daughters working from their homes, seaming and stitching and embroidering, etc. Now, they also burned two entire premises on Drogheda Street. On the top left-hand side, we have Landy's. It was a attached pub. Mr. Landy was uh, from County Loud. He wasn't in Brigham on the night in question. Uh, directly opposite was um, Joseph and Theresa McGowan's Gladstone Inn, and that was completely demolished as well. Reynolds newsagent shop was demolished as well. So you can imagine the damage that was done, and people lived in terror uh, and fled the town in terror that night. Now, black and tans weren't finished. For the next day or two, they roared through the town, uh, whistling and jeering and, and shooting at anything that moved. And one of the reasons, and probably the main reason, why the sack of a brigand is considered by most historians as, if not one of the two, the most notorious reprisal during that period. Because there were reprisals before and after. Within days of this reprisal in Barbrigan, the towns of Ennis Time and Lahinge and uh, Milton Malbay and Clare were torched. Mallow in Cork suffered similarly, as did Trim. Was that 20 miles away in the capital city, there was a cadre of foreign journalists, British, European, French, American, in Ireland covering the events of the War of Independence. And Desmond Fitzgerald, the director of Sinn Féin propaganda, made sure to arrange secret interviews with senior Sinn Féin figures. And within a day, a lot of these photographers and journalists were able to travel to Berbrigan by road or rail and describe in great detail what they saw, as did the reporter from the Draw Independent. So the word reached England and then it reached America. So also the fact that Berbrigan hereto had a reputation as a relatively peaceful town. The damage done, of course, and the nature of the death of the two men, because during the night, several volunteers were taken into the barracks for questioning. But the following morning at dawn, two bodies were found much mutilated at the corner of Key Street. One was that of James Lawless, a barber living just across from the barracks, a 41-year-old barber, married to Mary Ann Woodhead and father of eight young children. And the other gentleman was young John Gibbons. He was 27 years of age, resident in Hampton Street, with aged mother and true unmarried sisters. He was secretary of the local volunteers. Both men were involved. Now, it is said, said by people at the time, black and tans and possibly auxiliaries were aided by an informer who was called Jack Straw. And apparently this man was staying with Rosie Donnelly in Key Street as a lodger. And uh, apparently he was an ex-serviceman or soldier. Now... 
we'll be dealing with that with the story as we pr- proceed in our uh, presentation. He actually was seen a day later in Skerries, was chased out of Skerries in broad daylight by local volunteers, was reputed to have two loaded revolvers, sometime later was caught in Clannard Hill, was taken away, interrogated, and at some stage he was executed. His body was found on the 21st of October in a drain or a ditch at a place called Bettyville. So the sack of a brigand then it was, became, I suppose, a notorious event, incredibly well, um, I suppose, covered at the newspapers and media of the time. A recent fo- photograph taken by Killian of the premises which is standing on the site, which is occupied by Mary Smith's premises, is now called the Mill Race. And this is the lane that, that Willie Corcoran called Heaney's Lane. We now know it as Vauxhall Street. And this is the way Michael Rockin himself advanced in the darkness. And this is where they, they advanced towards. And down on the left is the back door of the premises still standing where whence they entered and exited from. This is a modern photograph of the landscape of Bridge Street. Virtually nothing has changed. Uh, down at the very bottom is the bridge on Bridge Street, where there's a plaque to both James Lawson and uh, John Gibbons. The pub was owned by the Ennis family at the time. McEnroe's had a shop. And indeed, in his testimony, John Derham said that Mr. McEnroe warned Mr. Lawless to escape, that there might be trouble, but he refused. Understandably so, with eight young children to look after. The barber shop here in question was the premises and house of the Lawless family. Uh, this is a modern photograph of the site in Hampton Street where John Gibbons and his family lived. He, one of his sisters, eventually married a local man called Christy Coyle, who ran a, a dairy there for many years. And that is the frontage of the original premises of James Lawless. And just further down the road, this building is still standing, a former YMCA building. This was the premises that was used as a barracks by the RIC. There might have been a contingent of between 15 and 20 men, District Inspector Hunter, several sergeants, etc. And it was into this building that the two men were hauled in for questioning that night. By all accounts, they suffered a beating and they were interrogated and, and, and asked to provide the names of the assailants of the Brooke brothers, and they refused. And at dawn the next morning, the bodies were found on the corner there, where the sign is lowered to the ground of Key Street at Bridge Street. Um, newspapers reported that there's a pool of blood, that the bodies were taken across the road to Keeling's Yard, covered with blankets, and that was the scene of the, of, of the, the desolation as such. Now, this is just across the road. This is the premises of a member of the Keeling family who has passed away, and we're going to now look at a photograph. I take it taken short of in the 30s maybe 15 years after the sack of a brigand. This was the original premises belonging to the Keeling family. Christy Keeling Sr. Uh, they had a dairy as well in a shop. And that is Bridget Keeling, the wife of Christy Keeling. And we noticed that the shop was in her name. And two of her sons here were probably aged now eight or nine or 10, um, Bill Keeling and Joe Keeling. And for years when they retired, Bill Keeling became a very, very good patron and friend of the historical society in Bobrigan. We've taken this from Michael Barley's book because it's a depiction of a crossy tender, as it says, shielded by armour plate, transports auxiliaries encased under a protective wire mesh. 
And it's possibly three of these units that come into Cobrigan on that particular night. It's covered reasonably. The reason they're called Crossley Tenders is because they were actually manufactured by Crossley Motors in Manchester. Now, this is probably an iconic photograph uh, taken shortly afterwards of the ruins of Connolly's pub. And lots of citizens there and children there, unfortunately, I suppose, will never know the identities of all of these citizens here viewing the destruction. This is the, the site of the original Connolly's Hotel, or Connolly's Pub as such. Looking directly across the road uh, from Connolly's as such, the ruins of the Derham household. And it's now occupied by Brigham Medical Centre. But I asked Killian to include the, the other inset photograph depicting the date of the rebuilding. Um, compensation claims were lodged within days to Brigham Town Commissioners who had no funds. They were advanced to Fingal County Council. And eventually a compensation commission was set up for Ireland in 1922. And eventually officers went around the country interviewing people, claimants, seeing the damage. And there's a wonderful article in a book called Terror in Ireland by David Fitzpatrick. And um, he devoted an entire article called The Price of Balbriggan. And his research is incredible because over a period of four or five years, he analyzed and researched all 71 claims. What people got, what, the first person who got an advance loan in 1922, in his opinion, was Michael Derham of £6,700, roughly that at the time. Probably because of his social status and his political status as such. Because at that stage, his son Jimmy was serving as what was called a treaty TD. And this further up in Jodhis Street are the remains of Landy's Thatched Pub. And now the present premises are owned by the Riley family. We know it as the Harvest Inn. And sometimes I look at the exterior of it, we can see now that uh, the Landy family had to wait until 1923 for their compensation, and hence it was built in 1923. I'm not an architectural historian, but it looks quite like an Art Deco building of the period. And across the road, this is a photograph of three men standing outside the ruins of the Gladstone Inn. And the man in the question, we were allowed to be informed, was Joseph McGowan himself. Now, I've related a story concerning the Gladstone on one or two occasions over the years. Brigham Historical Society had the honour of organising two weekly exhibitions in the Market House of Brigham in 83 and 84. And we were setting it up. Jack Kennedy came along, a uh, former town commissioner. And in a handkerchief, he said, Guard that with your life, son. It was a small glass bearing the imprint Gladstone in Brigham. And he said, as a boy of seven, he trampled the ruins and found that one untouched glass. And it was in the possession of the family for many years. And as the modern uh, milestone in now as such. Now, the, the, the committee, I suppose, some years ago, particularly Killian, sourced photographs from the RT archives and from uh, the National Library and also from an album of photographs belonging to, to Jim Glennon. And photo, photographs like this appeared in the album. That's just a general shot looking up Clannard Street, showing sort of some of the houses that had been ruined as such. And this is Corcoran's house, which was already referred to, totally destroyed. And again, Costello's and O'Brien's houses, scenes of more destruction. And now we refer to O'Neill's cottages. And I suppose in one sense, some of those people standing there, men, women and children, are possibly the former occupants. Now we know from Fitz, Professor Fitzpatrick's research that uh, all but one 
lessees, if you like, or the men mostly, who are pay, or be paying a rent to either the Balright Rural District Council or the O'Neill Brothers, did receive uh, compensation as such. And that is really, I consider, that's a remarkable photograph taken in the ruins of a house in Leonard Street. Um, now, that is to be the subject of a paper by local historian Frank Querity, who has decided to take this photograph and treat it as the base, or the, I suppose the thesis for a, a subject, dealing with one particular family in Barbrigan, naming the Costello family, and how they actually suffered at the hands of the Black and Tans. So we leave that to Frank Querity's uh, further research. This photograph is the photograph that appeared in Richard Bennett's 1959 publication, The Black and Tans, and appears in lots of publications. It's looking from probably the bottom of Clannard Hill down towards the town. And here you can see the row of thatched cottages. So we never identified a gentleman on the left, rather naturally attired. But we think the man with the pony and cart might be a man called John Matthews, because he lived in the top of Clannard Hill. His house is still standing. And he's listed as a sort of a, a trader and receiving compensation by Professor Fitzpatrick. Uh, just a general shot of the interior of Deeds Tempera and Company Hosiery Factory and a ruined machinery. Yes, now I've already mentioned the fact that in the previous year a commission had been set up in America to investigate conditions in Ireland, but so too the British Labour Party set up a commission. And these are members of this commission who came to various scenes in Ireland to view the destruction. And these are members of this commission in the ruins of the Brigham Siemens Limited. Both commissions later, the next year, published their findings, uh, the results of their inquiries, and both are available online. A general photograph of a family, I take it to be the father and the wife and the son and daughters, with all their belong belongings, walking up away probably from the scene of destruction, up Chapel Street. And this is a copy of an original, um, I suppose, document presented to me in the library some years ago by a very kind individual. Four days after the sack, a subscription was, fund was set up in the town hall. And many of, I suppose, the movers of, I suppose, the influential people of the town uh, became a self-appointed committee. And we're going to have a look at some of these people now. And on the left, we, We'll mention some of them and say, see what the role was in Lubrigan at the time. Lewis White was the managing director of Smith and Company. And the very day after the sack of Lubrigan, he and Dr. Fulham and Canon Byrne and Reverend Williams, yeah, actually it wasn't Reverend Williams, it was actually, he's mentioned there, yes, the Reverend William Jemison, director of Lubrigan, they motored to Dublin the following day and they met with Sir John Anderson, the under secretary the principal civil servant uh, in Ireland, and they remonstrated with him, expressed their anger over the outrage, and asked for assurance that something similar mightn't happen. So DJ Nolan, I take it to have been a doctor at the time. SJ Moorhead was a local banker. Charles Gallen was in charge of Gallen's Mills. Richard Gorman, we can see town commissioner, we've already mentioned him. Canon Bourne, we've mentioned, Reverend Jemison. William Murphy was the curate who attended to Sergeant Finnerty. The other curate in Babrigan was uh, Reverend Edmund O'Sullivan. PJ Curran was a county councillor. We have William Francis Fulham, MD. A name I haven't mentioned up to now, but deserves a mention, William Cochran. Now, he features in the article on the cost of Babrigan by Professor David Fitzpatrick. And he says that he was a very lucky man because only two years previously, he had moved from Bailiborough in Cavan to Babrigan. 
and that he legally represented all 71 claimants and made what Professor Patrick said a financial killing. William Bannon, we know, was the, uh, the town clerk at the time. And then Thomas Cashel, we mentioned earlier. William Comiskey was the head of the influential Comiskey family in Verbriggan. They had a brickworks, a bakery, they built houses in the town. Francis Thunder, I believed, in Blackhall House outside Barbrigan, Cornel Woods in Milverton, Captain Edward Taylor in Ardgillen Castle, Michael Sharkey and Joseph Sharkey were landowners, they had a shop, but they also, until August of that year, possessed a very large brick kiln and brickworks on the top of Clannard Hill. It only disappeared from the landscape in recent years, but coincidentally, as revealed by Brendan Matthews, in August of September, they sold the entire premises, lock, stock and barrel, and it was covered in the draught and the pendants. P. Wright, or Phil Wright, was a Quaker, and he was the owner of the local chemist or apothecary shop. Archdale Graham was town commissioner. Michael O'Rourke was one of the first supervisors of uh, Spicer's Bread Concern in Drada Street. Paddy Daly was the very first supervisor of the same bakery, who came from Navan, and he became quite a revered figure in Mabrigan for years, became local as a Gael Gore, a local historian. He penned many articles and uh, poems under the pseudonym of Padraig Daly, and his daughter Eileen Daly continued his, uh, she contained his possessions or his archives. She was part-time librarian, she was part-time reporter for Draw Independent, part-time uh, court clerk. Uh, Joseph Sharkey was mother of Michael Sharkey. William Butler was the principal of the old national schools then housed in Chapel Street on the, for, on the site of the former church. And J.A. Douglas was the principal of the Church of Ireland School in Hampton Street. And as we can see, some of the committee members probably felt it incumbent on themselves and morally responsible, and they also were major subscribers to the fund. I should say too that Drogheda adopted Verbriggan as a relief town and raised funds, as did the town of the city of Philadelphia in America. Now we're very, very, very privileged to have these two photographs. And I wish to thank Mr. Patrick Keaveney who was associated with the Glenamady Historical and Art Society. So last year I taught just in an act of sort of final completion. I just Google searched it and discovered them and wrote to them. And Patrick Keaveney went out and spoke to descendants of the Bourke family, still living in the family home. And lo and behold, with their permission, he emailed me two only known photographs of the two officers in civilian clothes. Peter Bourke, a young man there on the left, as I said, rose to a senior rank at a very young age as a young Catholic officer. And uh, his older brother, William Bourke, sergeant in charge of weights and measures. So they've only come into our possession in the last um, year, and we're blessed to have them. Uh, now, recently, uh, Killian, um, arch investigator, devoted some research here into the birth details of the brothers in Glenamati. And he had covered the, the, the birth certificate of Michael. We wanted to see which was the older brother as we see, Michael was, was born in 1878. Mother was Winifred Grogan. And then uh, Peter was born in 1884. And Michael, we believe, who was also an RIC officer, another brother, was based in Dublin. So three brothers were uh, members of the um, RIC. And we're looking now at the, I suppose, the police record of uh, Peter Bork. I think this was given to us years ago by the RIC historian, Jim Herlihy, and um, one bone of contention, I think, or something I might mention here, 
His date of birth is given in his birth certificate and on this record as 1884. But when we view towards the end of our presentation, his memorial in Denimati, uh, there's something slightly amiss. His height is given as uh, 5 feet 10, etc. And then we see further details of where he served, Antrim, Tipperary, Kerry, promoted acting sergeant 1915, sergeant 1918. Mordred in and that's the final entry. Now, I mentioned the alleged informer, William Straw. Um, his body was found, as I said, on 21st of October at a place called Bettyville, six miles from Swords, by you and two boys picking blackberries. His body was retrieved and immediately identified by the RIC. And it was said that six days later, in an act of retaliation, they entered Scarries and took a man called Terry Sherlock, a volunteer out of his house, and shot him in retaliation for a death of William Straw. Uh, there was a military court of inquiry held because at that stage they'd replaced inquests. Now, I've mentioned he was staying as a lodger with Mrs. Rosie Donnelly in uh, Key Street. She was described in the census as a fish dealer. But her husband gave evidence at the court of inquiry and stated that William Straw was a nephew of his wife. But a man called David Grant, an historian of some note and genealogist, he, he sort of corresponded through several emails with our committee in 2012, and I recently went through them. He devoted an incredible amount of research into the impossible identity of this alleged informer. And he narrowed it down to the, up to one possibility, a man called Percy William Straw, born in the outskirts of Nottingham City in 1891, joined the British Army in 1904, uh, had a clerical job. He was eventually appointed acting lieutenant. Got the military cross for bravery in France. Was shipped to Suez in 1918. Badly injured in Mesopotamia in March of 1918. When on leave, oh yes, in March of 1918, he was severely uh, wounded and lost his right leg. And the following year had it replaced at Roehampton um, University or hospital. Now, it's possible then, there are several records of his applying for remittance from his pension. Now, William Straw is supposed to have first entered the brigade in April of 1920 and to have spoken with an English accent. But at the inquiry, it was stated that he was a member of the Argyle and Sutherland Fusiliers. But in his research, David Grant discovered only one Percy William Straw who served in Egypt and Mesopotamia, but he'd served with the Seafort Highlanders. But he says that a man called Basil Thompson, operating in London during the Irish War of Independence, operating a string of about 80 spies in Ireland under his command. And most of them were ex-officers who had already served in Mesopotamia. Just possible that he might have recruited William Straw. It's not definite, but it's remarkable research carried out by David Grant. Now, we're indebted to Mary English, who now lives in Lakshini, the granddaughter, or the daughter of Stephen Lawless, who was the second youngest son of James Lawless, granddaughter, and each member of the family in Barbrigan have a copy of this wonderful portrait of James Lawless. Not quite sure, eh? he was probably in his 30s then, a very young man at 41, to leave a family of um, eight children behind. Now, Mary, for a while, was reared by her grandmother, who was called Mary Ann Woodhead originally. And Mary said, she never spoke about the details of the sack. Um, and as Professor Fitzpatrick reveals in his article, the Gibbons family and the Lawless family had to wait until the 13th of April 1923 
before receiving her compensation. And Mrs. Lawless received a sum of £1,500 then, and the Gibbons family received £500 for the three unmarried sisters of John Gibbons, because at that stage, his aged mother had died. Now, Mary said that with some of the money, her grandmother opened a shop, and it was run by her daughter, Una, for many years, and that she sent five of her children to America to make a life for themselves. Now, this is a remarkable photograph. Uh, it was donated by Frank Querty to the Archives of the Society. It's a photograph of O'Dwyer's Gaelic football team, which opened, uh, only recently started about 1919. Uh, according to this caption, they'd won the Intermediate League, uh, Dublin Intermediate League, in 1924. But we have actually marked out Willie Corcoran, four years later, at the age of 26, playing for O'Dwyer's. Because there's a very, very strong connection between the Gaelic League and the GAA, and the volunteer movement as well. Uh, might point out one man on the top left-hand side in civilian clothes, a member of the Kennedy family in Brigham called Frank Kennedy. Now, for years, he um, contributed articles for many years to draw independent. He was a sports journalist, and he wrote his articles under Ken O'D. And his brother Hugh was on the left in civilian clothes. He was secretary of the club at the time. And the man on the right was Phil Curran, um, county councillor as such. And finally, the man on extreme right down sitting here was a man called George Knight. And now we mentioned Michael Rock, and he, in his statement, he went to school in the National School in Dunall, and he attributed his interest in Irish history to his teacher, a man called Lahan from Kerry. And as soon as he left school, he, he joined the local Gaelic uh, League club, and he joined the Hurling Club, which was set up in 19, 1909. And this is a photograph of the Dunall Hurling Club in 1911, and that's a young Michael Rock there, second from left. And his brother also, John Rock, is third from right at the top as well. And I may or may not have mentioned this, this man, General Sir Neville McCready, but during this time, in 1920, now he's a former peace commissioner in London, but the British army asked him, to, or the British government asked him to come to Ireland, take control of the British army in Ireland, and also of the police. He refused to have anything to do with the RIC. He had no time and no respect for their morale or their discipline. Now, there was a clear out in 1920 of the administration in Dublin Castle, and three men were moved in to take over, uh, I suppose. With a... Now, Sir John Anderson, mentioned here in the caption, was the, probably the premier uh, civil servant of his time, and he was in charge of Dublin Castle and everything that happened underneath it for the rest of the, civil, or the Irish War of Independence. Now, he was ably assisted by an ex-policeman called Andy Cope, He's called Alfred Cope here, but behind the scenes, he was actually talking with and negotiating with Sinn Féin figures. It must be said that from the beginning of the War of Independence, from the Declaration of Independence, by the first provision of the all on the 21st of January 1919, the British government refused to allow the military to have any part in quelling this petty uprising. They insisted that it was the role of the police force as such. And that's why, eventually, they enrolled and enlisted over 9,000 ex-World War servicemen into the force which became known as the Black and Tan. Black and Tan, and that's why later in the year, they also set up a body known as the Auxiliaries. They were the Auxiliary Division of the RIC. Now, while the Black and Tans were men who'd seen some service in World War I, and they couldn't get employment in post-war Britain, they accepted a weekly pension or sum of 10 shillings a week, clothing and whatever. And they jumped at the chance of a bit of adventure in Ireland. They knew nothing about Irish politics. 
the idea was that when they were trained in Beggar's Bush in the Phoenix Park, they were then dispersed to various barracks throughout the country to assist the beleaguered RAC. But as other people have attested, it's a dreadful culture gap between both parties and gradually a dreadful sense of antipathy. And they had no respect for the officers in the, in the barracks. Now, the auxiliaries were men of a different calibre. These were men who had served and been promoted to officer class during World War I because they'd shown leadership qualities. A lot of the gentry class of officers were decimated. Now, these men were offered uh, some of a, a pound a week. They were heavily armed and heavily motorised. About 2,500 of these men came into Ireland later in 1920, and they were formed into bands of 100. And each band of 100 men got two Fords, cars, and several crossy tenders. And they took the fight to the, the volunteers throughout the country. And the third man in question was a man called Mark Sturgis. And he was one of the triumvirate who ran Dublin Castle. Now, as writers like Michael Hopkins have said, he was a man from a different background, ex-Etonian, ex-Oxfordian. And in his uh, unpublished memoirs, he's quoted as referring to the events of Brigham and referring to Brigham as a sink, derogatively. The man in charge at the moment, nominally at the time, was Sir Hammer Greenwood and his wife. The gentleman on the right was a man called General Sir Henry Tudor. Because of MacReady's refusal to take control of the police, he was brought over temporarily, then placed in control of the unarmed DMP in Dublin, the armed RAC, the armed Black and Tans, and the intelligence wings of the DMP. And, um, and we're looking at one or two recruitment posters at the time. These are taken from Michael Barry's book or, and or the Atlas of the Irish Revolution. And this is for the, yeah, the auxiliaries. Joined the auxiliary division of the Royal Irishshire Academy. Ex-officers, first-class record eligible. Courage, discretion, tact and judgment required. The pay is a pound per day and allowances. This might be one of the first photographs again of maybe the first batch of recruits of black and tans, newly arrived at Becker's Bush, wearing a mixture of khaki and RIC green, uh, green uniforms. And that's why it's said that they attracted the moniker or nickname of black and tans. There weren't enough uniforms to go around originally. So they wore uh, military khaki, dark green uh, police uniforms, black belts and asserted caps, and their colours were supposed to resemble a pack of hunting hounds called the Black and Tans in Limerick. And rather maybe a jolly postcard of the uniforms that were, they were using at the time. There was nothing jolly about them. And this was perhaps be a staged photograph, temporary cadet, which was the official uh, rank of uh, the auxiliaries and they were given the immediate rank of a sergeant in the RIC. They were noticeable because of their bandoliers and their Balmoral bonnets as well. Uh, this is just an example of the huge amount of news coverage attracted um, by the Sackville Brigand. And this appeared two days later in September uh, in the Irish Times. They devoted an entire page. Now, it's generally accepted the Irish Times, unlike the Irish Independent and the Freeman's Journal, would have been pro-unionist, or at least. And they would have called it a terrible outbreak, sequel to murder of a head constable. But when you read down the text, it was really very descriptive of the vast amount of damage that was done to the town. They didn't pull any punches. These are uh, not only the, the main newspapers, but what were called the yellow press at the time, the tabloid press. The, this is the Daily Graphic, Thursday, September 23rd. Photographs, now two already featured in a presentation. Um, in fact, four have. 
But more of interest is the two insets and the only known photographs we have of John Gibbons. Now, there is one of John Gibbons in, a, in his uniform because he was captain of the local volunteers, but it wasn't uh, suitable for this presentation. This is quite a remarkable photograph, in my opinion, because it seemingly depicts members of the local RIC uh, personnel standing on the steps of the barracks and saluting the remains of Seamus Laws and Sean Gibbons as their bodies were brought to Belscadden Cemetery. I often wonder, was that a quite unique gesture? Uh, was it based on the fact that J James Lawless was living across the road? It's possible that over the years he would have actually cut their hair. Or was it the fact that within two days the administration and military realised the enormity of what had happened and were kind of trying to soothe local, local uh, feelings? Thank you. Again, um, as proof positive of how widely covered this event was. This is a photograph of an image that appeared in a supplement to an Italian newspaper called La Tribuna. Um, and that again to Killian, who had all of the uh, text translated. So we see it's taken from a supplement to the newspaper La Tribuna, and it's nearly three months after the sack of a brigand. And it depicts, it's based on a photograph that appears in the Society's catalogue or centenary um, calendar. And as we see the caption on the right-hand side, Terra in Ireland, the population of the Irish town of Abrigan, leave their homes, carrying the furniture and household goods that they could salvage after the sacking by the English troops. That gives an idea of how widely the event was covered. I mentioned foreign journalists, and we are in possession of quite a unique document, which we haven't yet released to the public, in English form or in French form. It's quite a story. Some years ago, an erstwhile uh, chairperson of our society, Pauline O'Hare, was living in, in France. And she came across a journal, and she came across, completely by accident, in French, an article dating from 1955 by a journalist called Joseph Kessel. Now, her French is excellent, and she realised the total article pertained to the sack of Barbrigan, that he was in Barbrigan the very next morning. So at my request, eventually, she translated it for me, and passed her over to me last year. Now I have a copy here with me. It's quite remarkable. He and two other French journalists, Jean Barrault and Simone Terry, were in Dublin covering the Irish War of Independence, as were English journalists like Hugh Martin from the Daily News. And his article says that he got a phone call from Desmond Fitzgerald from a telephone booth who says, get down to Bobrigan. Something happened. He said, where's Bobrigan? He got a taxi. He says the journey was interminable. He even describes the countenance of the, the taxi driver uh, as being freckled. And he describes the scene of horror and devastation with typical journalistic flair in 1955. Now, we have never released it in public in English format, but that's my intention. Perhaps next year, um, with fellow local historian Frank Querty, we feel that next year would be the time to put all of our resources together and compile a very comprehensive history book, quoting all of our sources. But when I go Google searched this man, it was, he had an incredible life and career. He was born in 1898 in Argentina, spent his childhood in Russia, reached Paris or France in 1904. Now he joined, he was an aviator, a pilot in World War I, survived. After the war, he became known as a troubleshooter, sort of a globetrotting journalist 
visiting hotspots. And we know then what he found in Brigand on the 21st September. In World War II, he fought for the Free French Army in England with 342 Bomber Squadron and survived that. And after World War II, he became famous as a well-known journalist and author. And one of his many novels, actually, is very well known to film fans. It was directed by Louis Bonwell in 1967. And it starred the beautiful uh, French actress Catherine Deneuve. And it's called Belle de Jour. He died age 80 and he got the Legion of Honour. But as a young man, he stood in Bridge Street in Barbrigan and towards the end of his, he, he met actually, and described in great detail, whom he describes as a young curate called Bourne, who speaks him at great lengths about, in shock and horror, what happened to, to his previously a peaceable town. In fact, he wasn't a mere curate, he was Canon Bourne himself. But he says in the final part of his uh, paragraph, I viewed the much mutilated remains of one of the men in question. And now we're just coming and looking at one or two shots of various commemorations of a brigand as depicted in the Drogheda Independent. So 21 years later, of course, in 1941, there was a commemoration and there was a march. And here are members of the local Boy Scouts, the local landed defence forces, marching up George's Square towards the church, possibly towards a mass. Just on the right-hand side on the pulpit, or not on the stand, is Canon Hickey as such. Um, my father, who is now 91 years of age, Finton Walsh, was actually um, a scout at the time, and he was born in 1929, so it's possible he was part of the Mar March of Subtig. My grandfather, Jimmy Walsh, his father, was a quartermaster in the local branch of the LDF, so it's possible that both grandfather and father were involved in that march. And now, 50 years later, after 1920, we come to the front page of Drawed Independence, which depicts the commemoration in Balscadden Cemetery, where the bodies of James Lawless and John Gibbons were buried in 1920. And the photograph on the right shows Willie Corcoran, then aged, I think, 72, laying a wreath beside the memorial of Gibbons and Lawless. We have members, I think, of the army about to, to fire a volley of shots. This is a very recent addition to our presentation last few nights. Happened at Lancelot. It's actually a photograph taken by my sister, Margaret Tluskey, who now resides in Balscadden. And in 1970, as a mother of two young children in the pram, she walked out Flemington Lane and took this photograph and gave it to me in a frame. And we've included it in our presentation for the first time. And the portico in question was built by my grandfather, Jimmy Walsh. Um, he was a master builder. And for many years during Corpus Christi processions, it hung from hooks on the wall of the courthouse in Barbrigan and the clergy and the parishioners marched down and had a service under it. So obviously the parishioners brought that particular portico or portal on a lorry and put it on stand on Balscadden Hill, which is quite steep, adjoining St Mary's Church in Balscadden. Not quite sure why a mass was said it wasn't held within the church. Perhaps it couldn't hold all the crowds. So we could take a lot of these people had walked out from Bobrigan as well. But we, we can identify the four members of the clergy for, and who are father, parish priest's father, Tonge, and the three curates are fathers, Murphy, Collier, and Fingleton. And again, this is a very recent addition uh, to our presentation. And this is courtesy of Joe Curtis, now residing in Denal, and his very good friend and great friend and patron of our society before his passing, Jack Benton. And Jack was a noted local photographer 
And when he passed away, all his photographs were passed over to his great friend, Joe. So all of their photographs bear the imprint Bent and Curtis collection. Both of them took photographs this morning in question. That is Bridge Street, the plaque. And there obviously had been a mass and then a march and procession down by parishioners and or laying a wreath. The man in question is Jerry McGowan, who was a, 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 I suppose, a very influential solicitor in Brigham for many years. The man on the right was Louis Derham, I think the youngest son of John Derham, for many years a town commissioner and a shop dealer. The man on the left is Willie Corcoran. And the man whose head we could see directly behind Jerry McGowan, I refer to him as Jack R. The Munchie Gainer, who was called by his contemporaries, John Henry Gainer officially, uh, Jack Gainer or the Munchie Gainer. So we have it in, 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 in picture here two men who are the captain and the second lieutenant who were involved in the volunteers in 1920. Now the man then standing second from right in the front, with hands down by his side, I think is the same Frank Kennedy, the Mull Kennedy, as depicted in the 1924 photograph of Edwards. And indeed, my own father, Finton, is in the background, age 41. And again, we come to 1984. Um, the Draw Pennant was established in 1884. And obviously, 100 years later, they brought out a wonderful commemorative large format newspaper. I remember buying two copies and Kitty White shot, shot for a pound each. And lucky enough, they devoted two and third pages in their centenary leaflet to their original coverage with photographs. So when, when students used to come into a brigand library in the 90s and they were doing leaving cert projects on the sack of a brigand, I had those photographs to hand and pages. And I often just said, look, there's enough in those two pages, it'll be grand. And they were, because the text and the information was spot on. And now to 1995, on the 75th anniversary, and again, we can have Stephen Lawless and two other town commissioners. And we have, uh, one was actually Jack Lurkin. And uh, they were obviously just commemorating the, the, the uh, 75th anniversary. And then that year, a reporter from the Dryden Independent came up to the library to me. You can see her name there, Kira Ryan. And I gave her some documentation to help her with a forthcoming article, including the photograph in the top right, which only came into my possession uh, that particular year. And it depicted the unveiling of a memorial uh, in 1941 by the old IRA to the memory of Gibbons and Lawless. Uh, more photographs of the same occasion. Um, members of the Lawless family there on the left-hand side. Uh, Stephen Lawless, a uh, second youngest son of James Lawless. The man down at the, the lower inset was Owen Collum, uh, since passed away. He was the principal of Balscad National School. And on the same afternoon, you see, they would have gone out to Balscadden. And because of his status, he was asked to place the wreath um, in front of the memorial. And finally, to 1999, um, when the editor of the Fingal Independent was looking at past events of the last century, a millennium in Barbrigan, the last century particularly. And yes, he singled out the Sack Barbrigan as the biggest story of the century. Now, the following two photographs adorn the front and the rear or the cover, of the uh, calendar brought out uh, by Bobrigan um, Historical Society. And I think it's a wonderful work. I think it'll stand the test of time. Um, but this particular uh, photograph actually appears in the Atlas of the Irish Revolution. And the caption is quite lengthy. And it tells us that the men in front are eight members of the American Commission who came to Ireland. And the two, two gentlemen in front are Clement J. France, 
a Seattle-based lawyer, and John McCoy. Now, they've been ably assisted by some local men in the back, and again, I think one of the local men might be the same Frank Kennedy. Now, they visited Ireland between the 12th of March and uh, 12th of February, 31st of March 1921. They visited 95 locations, but the first three locations were Babrigan, Scarries, and Clonard Street. Now, they set up a body called the White Cross to distribute their funds uh, so that their probity and honesty and integrity wouldn't be questioned. And they settled eventually the sum of £4,000 then on a tenable brigand to encourage business initiatives. Now, that photograph, I think, is the, was obviously the one on which the illustration in the Tribuna. And these would be three local women, probably walking away from a ruined house, ruined houses in prams, sometimes referred to then as bassinets or bassinets, coming up Clannard Street. Now, a referred to compensation awarded between 1922 and 1923, and the following two images are taken from Professor Fitzpatrick's article called The Price of Balbriggan. Incredible work of research. He went through, for several years, Iris Ifiguil. He went through the valuation records. He went through the census of 1901, 1911, because he wanted to establish the status and the occupations of all of the people. And of course, he discovered that about 83,727 pounds was paid out by the British Treasury through the Irish Ministry of Finance. That more than half of the fund for a brigand went to the owners of Deeds Templars, namely 45,000. Second highest uh, payment was made out to Patrick Connolly, the owner of the pub, tour to Joseph McGowan, etc., etc. Oh, by the way, um, Anne Corcoran is fixed on the list, Willie Corcoran's mother, and she received 2,225 listed as a dairy keeper. Thank you, Killian. Yeah, Killian took these photographs then, and these are various uh, road signs in Babrigan. Uh, Derham Park, Gibbons Terrace. Derham Park, built in the 50s. Gibbons and Lawless Terrace. Uh, Continuous row of houses built in the 1930s, uh, Fulham Terrace. So Derham Park was presumably named after Jimmy Derham because he served as a TD on two separate occasions. And he suffered a very early and tragic debt because in 1923, at the tender age of 27, while socialising with Michael O'Rourke in Spicer's Bakery, he fell down the stairs and was killed. And uh, Dr. Fulham was held in high regard by the people of the town. Hence, Fulham Terrace and Fulham Street were named after him. Now, the following photographs were taken by Killian in the last year. And in Balscadden Cemetery, we have the memorial to the parish priest at the time, Reverend Canon Eugene D. Bourne. He was actually a native of Animo in County Wicklow, and he died in 1924, four years later. Now, Killian travelled out to the um, cemetery in Stamullen in County Mead uh, to photograph the memorial to Dr. William Fulham, who died. 31st of December 1934, and his wife Susan died 31st July 1929. And this is uh, a close-up photograph of the memorial to Detective uh, Head Constable Peter Burke in the family plot in Glenamady, in County Galway. It was first, I suppose, viewed by one of our committee members some years ago by uh, Jerry MacDonald, who also visited the family. And it's now available on the internet. And uh, Killian has kindly provided the caption, Oh Jesus have mercy in the soul of my dear brother, Peter Bourke, DI, now State Street Inspector, RIC of Bayuna, 
which Colleen has discovered is a townland outside Glenamaddy, who died 20 September 1920, aged 33 years, and the son of my dear mother, Winifred Burke. Now, I mentioned earlier two records indicated he was born in 1884, which means in theory he was 36 years at the age of his death, so I still have to, to get to the bottom of that particular story. And now we are in St. Peter and Paul's Cemetery in Bobrigan, opened in 1929, and a memorial to William Corcoran, Willie Corcoran, who died 24th of February 1989, Bobrigan uh, Company, 1st Battalion, Fingal Brigade, Old IRA. Yes, and in Sword Cemetery, we have the memorial to Michael Rock. Now, Michael Rock's uh, st uh, statement in April 1956, remarkable, like he was on the run for the rest of the Irish War of Independence and never captured. And he took part and masterminded an attack on the RAC barracks in Wush and at the Coast Guard stations in Skerries. And he almost survived and scathed until the 2nd of July, 1921, seven days before the truce was signed. And he was cycling out to a camp at Old Town where the sort of a flying column were based. And at Spring Hill, two crossy tenders passed him. But an RAC officer spotted him and he was shot twice, once in the hip and once in the right arm. His body taken was then taken to the Coast Guard station of Brigham, which was manned by the blackened hands. Dr. Fulham attended to him, accompanied him to the military hospital in um, Grange Gorman, and uh, where he was operated on. Now, he was interrogated on several occasions in the hospital by intelligence agents, and he refused to give them information, and they threatened him with hanging, but he said he was saved by the truce. He was released in just before Christmas of 1921. He took no further part in the, in the Irish Civil War. He set up an undertaking business in swords. And he was very, very involved for many years with Fingalians. Now, as you can see here, he reached the age of 83, and he died in October 69, my apologies, uh, and he was aged 83 years of age. Thank you. Now, I refer to Jimmy Derham and his tragic death, we have no photographs of Jimmy Derham, but I'm indebted to a family who handed over some years ago a collection of news cuttings and photographs pertaining to Tanwar Brigan going back to the turn of the century. I couldn't believe my luck because there are three photographs of the funeral of Jimmy Derham in the Pro Cathedral in Dublin. And this is his coffin being carried out, presumably by family members, perhaps members of the local volunteers. But the three gentlemen on the right were allowed to be informed the gentleman on the left was his father, John Derham. And I don't wish to speculate, but I'm just wondering, the gentleman on the right has a very strong resemblance to a young, young Sean Lamas. Thank you. And actually, the family, John Derham and his wife Margaret, eventually moved and settled in Skerries, where they're buried in Home Patrick Cemetery, as is their son, Michael James Derham. Died 20 of uh, November 1923, aged 27 years. And now we come to Balscadden Cemetery itself, and we're looking at the memorial to Seamus Lawless and Sean Gibbons, who were brutally done to death by British forces while in their custody on the occasion of the sack of a brigand, 20th of September 1920. Now, we only discovered some years ago, of course, that um, both this plaque on Bridge Street and the memorial were unveiled in 1941, and it reads, near this spot, Seamus Lawless and Sean Gibbons were brutally done to death by British forces while in their custody 20 September 1920. And over the years, particularly during the Troubles in Northern um, Ireland, 
uh, at times perhaps we are a little bit uh, reticent when referring to the, the details and the wording, but when one realises the nature of the death of the men in question and the circumstances, it's probably understandable that the people in 1941 chose such extreme reading. And with that slide, we finish our presentation. Thank you.